0: Hi folks, hope you're all doing well and having a good start to the new year. I took a week off over the holidays, but as you can no doubt tell since you're listening to this, I'm back. And for this episode, I want to talk about something a little different, a palette cleanser if you will. A lost garden that has since been brought back to life. This isn't just any garden though. It was designed by America's first female landscape architect, Beatrix Farrand. Beatrix created the landscapes for quite a few incredibly wealthy people including John Rockefeller Jr., Woodrow Wilson, and J.P. Morgan, a number of prestigious universities, and even the White House. Beatrix was a pioneer in her field, but much of her work is gone. Today, I'm joined by Karen Waltuck, horticulturalist at the Beatrix Farron Garden Association, and David Hayes, Natural Resource Program Manager at Roosevelt, Vanderbilt, Van Buren National Historic Sites in Hyde Park, New York. And we'll talk about Farron's legacy and the efforts to share her long-lost wild garden at Bellfield, New York, with the public today. A lot of the subjects I cover here can be kind of heavy, but today's story is a pretty fun one and in a lot of ways has what I'd consider a pretty happy and inspiring ending. I hope you enjoy it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to Michelle Montalbano, who had the idea for this episode and helped quite a bit in facilitating it. Thanks, Michelle. With that, let's get started. I'm Matthew Christopher, and you're listening to Abandoned America. Karen and Dave, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm really excited to talk with you about this. I think you both have a really interesting story to tell. And it's kind of a little outside of the wheelhouse of what I normally do in my podcast, because... You know, I'm usually looking at like these huge asylums, or I think when people think of abandoned buildings, they're thinking of that, like a ornate theater or something like that. And they're not necessarily thinking about landscape architecture, landscape design. And in this case, the story that you're going to tell us is about a secret garden by a very notable landscape designer that was kind of forgotten and lost. And then through your efforts and the efforts of other volunteers brought back. So thank you very much for being here today. I'm really excited to have you.
1: Thanks for talking about this with us.
0: Um, So I guess to start, uh, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in the project, the Beatrix Farrin Garden.
1: Sure. So I did my horticultural study in New York City and my first job Professionally, was working at a historic site there at the Morris Jamel Mansion in Manhattan, which was built just 10 years after the Belfield Mansion was built and coincidentally also had a historic garden attached to it, which I used to maintain with the New York City Parks Department. And I saw this job listed while I was there up here in Hyde Park and started doing both jobs simultaneously. And I fell in love with the Hudson Valley and fell in love with the garden and the association and decided to move up here and make this more my focus. So it was just serendipity and good luck that I got to join the team taking care of this really special garden.
0: I saw also, and unfortunately, I mean, this is one of those things that probably is a little off topic, but I wish we had more time to ask you about that. You were an intern at the Rikers Island Greenhouse Program, too, which sounds like that probably had some interesting stories as well.
1: Yeah, that garden is a horticultural therapy garden that was put in in the 90s by some people that understood the power of public gardening and how restorative it is for people from all walks of life. And so the inmates at Rikers get to have basically have emotional and occupational therapy through plants. And I worked there for almost two years with the Horticultural Society of New York, helping inmates, you know, enjoy life in a way that is pretty difficult to enjoy when you're locked up, unfortunately. And so I think that really got my love of public gardening going. And it made me realize that public spaces and public lands should be for everyone to enjoy. And that a beautiful garden is important for people from all walks of life. And so that's where I've decided to focus my my work is in public gardening.
0: That's awesome. That's one of those things that uh, I would love to ask you a million more questions about. But Dave, what about you? How did you come to be involved in the project with the gardens?
2: Well, I've been here since 1982 working in Park for the National Park Service and one of the things that I cover is cultural landscape research and restoration projects um, you know, for example we have another site at the Vanderbilt Mansion where we've got a large garden that has been restored and maintained by volunteers so I have been involved with the, the Belfield garden to some extent right from the beginning and it's been interesting to see, that in parallel with the development of the Belfield estate itself, which was pretty well abandoned and in very, very rough shape when we acquired it in 1976. Uh, but you know I oversee all the buildings and grounds in the park. And so landscape or landscapes are just one of those resources that I what you're saying there brings me to a point
0: that I think is important to note for our listeners that I feel like we've, you know, we've kind of got two stories that we're telling here, right? We have maybe three, we have the story of Beatrix, we have Belfield and then we have the garden and, you know, Belfield and the garden, I think kind of go in tandem, but just so that we can kind of put this together, I think maybe the best way to tell it is to talk about Beatrix a little bit first so that people understand when we get to Belfield, why the garden was so important there. So she was born in 1872 in New York City and died in 1959. Uh, It says that she was the designer of 110 gardens for various estates and clients, including the Rockefellers, Princeton and Yale. And she even designed the East Colonial Garden at the White House, which is now the redesigned Rose Garden. What can you tell me about Beatrix and why she's somebody that we should really know?
1: Well, I think she's important because she established herself as a professional in an era when women just did not have the same opportunities. And she made the opportunities for herself. She was from a family that was basically all women. She was raised by her mother and her aunt, and the three women were very successful professionals during a time when women didn't have the right to vote. Women, single women often didn't have a lot of professional opportunities. Married women had to ask their husbands for permissions, permission to have professional lives. And the three of them didn't kind of let any of that cultural stuff stop them and had really impressive professional lives without them being centered around family, and, and men. So to me, I think that's a really significant story to tell because she did all of this before other women were doing it. So she's often cited as being the first American female landscape architect. She had some colleagues of her era that were also active, but she really was the most successful one to come out of this period of time. So she was the first, she was in the first group of the American Society for Landscape Architects, the ASLA. She was the first woman in that group, in that founding group. She also had her own professional office that never melded with any other professional offices, so she kept the Beatrix Ferrand name on all of her own designs. So historically, you know, we don't have to say that she was a member of an architectural team or that she was part of another landscape group. She kept her professional name on all of her designs and projects. And she had the foresight to professionally archive her drawings and correspondence and all of the ephemera from her long, long, wonderful career. And that is all meticulously cared for at Berkeley uh, University in California. So there's a lot of information about her abilities because it was all archived and we have so much information about the jobs that she did. And she was just incredibly talented. So it wasn't just that she was this, you know, iconic female. She was also this incredibly, first and foremost, incredibly talented landscape architect that set many of the trends in, in landscaping that we see still happening. She was a big proponent of Native plants and kind of wilding of gardens in kind of the English cottage style that was not of the time yet in the United States. She kind of brought a lot of that over from Europe.
0: She started landscape gardening at 23 and she was working on private gardens because women were excluded from public projects.
1: Right. And also, I I think it is important to note that she did come out of this upper echelon of this class group in America that she had a lot of connections that gave her her beginning opportunities so she really she proved herself very quickly to have great great talent and then got her jobs because of her abilities but i think in the beginning she probably had a lot of connections that helped her get her first step up into this world so Her mother was a really accomplished literary agent and hosted a salon at their home in the East Village, which had many, many, many important authors and writers attending frequently. Her best friend was Henry James. Uh, Her aunt was Edith Wharton, who was obviously a really successful writer at the time. You know, she was a successful living writer. She was successful in her lifetime. So they rubbed elbows with a lot of, very accomplished and interesting people. And she also came out of a family that had a lot of connections. So she worked on, like you mentioned, a lot of colleges. She worked on a lot of private homes. You're right. She did not get commissioned to do very many public gardens. And she also was never hired by any of the larger architectural firms that, like Olmsted or any of the other groups that had all men working in their landscape design offices, but 110 or so sites that she designed in her lifetime, there's not that many of them that still exist. And the ones that do are very well known, like Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C., the Acadia National Park carriage roads that she worked on with the Rockefellers, It wasn't created in her lifetime, but she did design the Rose Garden at New York Botanical Gardens in the Bronx. So the sites that do exist of hers are still lauded as being very important designs. And her legacy, though, was buried until the
0: 1990s, right? I mean, how did that happen?
1: I think people who studied landscape architecture knew of her, but in the same way that I think a lot of stories of women who are accomplished don't get written into history books. I don't think that she was a name that, you know, the average American would have known if you were in landscape design circles or in, you know, in the plant world, I'm sure that people knew of her, but it wasn't something that, I you know, if you grew up in Washington, D.C., I have friends that said, oh, of course, we, we went to Dumbarton Oaks all the time and I knew who she was, but, I think outside of that, there wasn't probably books that were really written about her until the 90s. And our association, the Beatrix Fair and Garden Association, made a film about her that's only one of a couple of films that have ever been made about her. So I think it's just like all the other stories of underrepresented people that their stories just don't get told. Until more recently, we're starting to hear about these people that have just kind of been written out of history.
0: So in that sense, I mean, you have kind of a forgotten garden from a forgotten landscape designer, and we'll get a little bit, I kind of want to circle back to that in a bit, but what was it that really brought her back to people thinking about landscape design and looking at her legacy?
1: Well, her archives at Berkeley, from what I understand it, were not very digitized until recently. So if someone had heard about her and wanted to study her designs... I'm not sure that it was that accessible unless you flew to California and looked through the archives, which I know the film I just mentioned, our producer and former horticulturist Ann Sims did fly out to be able to look through the archives in person since it wasn't all digitized. So I think once people started seeing those archives and and seeing the volume of work that she created in her lifetime and things started coming to the forefront and uh, people understanding kind of the genius of her abilities, she started to get more notice. um, After also being that her clientele were all the very, very, very rich. I don't think again, the average American would have known what was going on behind the gates of someone's mansion estate. Until we had the time, in hindsight, to look at those archive drawings and designs. So now that a lot of those spaces, like our garden, have become public land, I think people kind of understand the diamond that was hidden away. What would you say
0: the genius of her designs was? I mean, I think you touched a little bit on it earlier, but like, what makes her style distinctive and memorable? And what would you say was innovative
1: about it? From... What I have read about and seen, because not very, very many of her gardens exist anymore, like I mentioned, that there's still a few that are really wonderful, but of the 110 or so that she created, you know, a fraction are still in existence. So we have to look at her drawings and we have to look at old photographs and the spaces that we still have. She was really great at creating, not illusions, but kind of Maybe Dave can help me articulate this. She was really good at at understanding the space of a design and utilizing it in a way that either made it feel larger or smaller or more open or more uh, intimate. Our garden, for example, at Bellfield is not a huge garden, but the way that the beds are laid out, telescoping, getting smaller and smaller as you look south in the garden, it gives you this optical illusion of the garden just going on and on and on and on, that it just seems to be with this forced perspective of narrowing as you look south. It, it feels like a much larger garden than it is. At Dumbarton Oaks in DC, she had this cliffside landscape to work with, and she made it into all of these different garden rooms that you kind of go down in different steps and different heights and curves that go down the cliff as you're going through her design space that make it feel like you're not on this extreme cliff face at arcadia national park she put in natural plantings that made it seem like the carriage roads just naturally come out of the ro- of the hillsides they blasted away those roads with with dynamite to build the excess roads and she went in afterwards and put the plantings in around them that make it look as though those roads have always existed because she took native plants and she took, you know, the correct scaling of different size shrubs to make it all look very natural. So she really, she was very, very clever in her use of space. And I think that's something that people really admire her for. And then, as I mentioned before, she was one of the first American, designers to appreciate the native plants of the United States of North America and she used them a lot in her plantings which back in you know the late 1800s early 1900s was not a very common thing like it is now with all of our enthusiasm for native planting she understood that if you plant things that are native to an area that they're going to they're going to perform well that they're going to be healthy and they're going to provide for the local, animals and insects. And she she was very, very ahead of her time with that idea. So those are, those are two major ways that I know that she's still highly respected. When you're talking about the native planting thing, prior to that,
0: people were kind of looking at like, okay, we're going to bring in these species that aren't native to the area that might not thrive in it. Was that maybe more of their trying to emulate like European gardens? How would you describe the practice before that?
1: I think that part of it was that she went to Europe and saw a lot of cottage gardens and what we would think of as wild gardens, and she thought of how that could apply in the United States. So the common style at the time in the States was that people would have these show gardens that had a standard um you know a, a sculpted standard or a sculpted hedge or rows of boxwoods and then perhaps plantings of different like exotic annuals that would just be grown for the one year or would have a specimen plant that was kept in a greenhouse through the winter and then would come out into the lawn you know for the summertime season and she brought back from Europe from her studies in Europe The idea that you could incorporate native plants to have year-round interests in the garden and you could use more perennials to have hardy you know, season after season interest in a garden and develop different things on a longer scale than just using the annual plantings that were more common. Having the cottage garden aesthetic of things that are being grown right up next to other plants. So when you have multiple plants of different species right next to each other, you get to have these different plays in texture and in color in size in bloom time. And what was more common in her time in the United States was that people would have mass plantings of one thing that would be in bloom. And then that might all get ripped out. And the next thing would all be planted in a mass again. And then the next thing would be planted in a mass. And so it was, it, it it was much more ecological, her way of doing things. And I think it came again from her studying of how people were doing that in Europe.
0: We're at a point where we have moved recently and we have more space that we can develop our own gardens and plants and stuff like that. And it's not a thing that I particularly know a lot about. So I feel like when you come into something and you're like, wow, I am way out of my league with this, it, in a way, it sort of helps you appreciate the artistry of it a bit more because. You look at it and think this is something that there's a lot of knowledge and science, but also sort of passion and creativity that goes into it. And I, I have to learn all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun stuff to learn. So let's talk a little bit about um, Belfield then. Here I have that in either 1911 or 12, I saw it in different places. Beatrix designed the walled garden at Belfield for her cousin who is the New York State Senator Thomas Newbold and his wife, Sarah Coolidge. And Sarah, I have as a, she was a direct descendant of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas was a senator and later head of the New York State Health Department. And their kids were playmates with Franklin Roosevelt, which is kind of wild. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Belfield estate and the Newbolds?
2: Well, Newbold and uh, Sarah Coolidge. Well, the the Belfield goes back actually quite a long ways before the Newbolds came on the scene. It was actually. Charles Crook Sr. had the first buildings on the property in the late 1700s, and it went through a series of owners and kind of the typical estates changing hands, getting bought by somebody from out of the area, um, getting mortgaged, people having financial problems. So it morphed a lot. It had in the mid 1800s uh, there was a major change to the building itself. There were a lot of renovations done at that time. Um, And then by the time we get to the turn of the century, when the Newbolds were there, they were really doing a major upgrade of the house. This was a design by McKim, Mead and White, which is probably the most noted architectural firm based in New York City. And they redesigned the house. And the thing that I wanted to add to what Karen was saying about Beatrix design was that She's so well integrated the design of the landscape and the garden into the redesign of the building. I mean, it really, one flows right from the other. It's hard to tell, you know, if you don't look closely, where's the landscape design start and where's does the, uh, the architectural design end? Um, it's you know, really remarkable that she pulled that together so well. I don't know if that holds true for all the other properties she worked on, but it certainly does at Belfield.
0: And the estate, I mean, this was originally one of the oldest colonial houses along the Hudson River, right? Uh, Before they did the renovation of it. And some of those elements are still incorporated in the building?
2: Yeah, the central part of the house is still the original. You know, if you dig into the, the details, you can see the really old framing, the joinery that was, you know, colonial era joinery. And then some of it has been mucked up over the years by various, you know, renovations, but a lot of it is still intact. Um, The central part of the house is still mostly original. Um, The, the wings are were added later and parts of the basement were added. They built a bomb shelter (laughs) at some point, but the whole estate, estate as a whole was much more than this one building. There was a carriage house, there were multiple outbuildings, gardens, There was a large water tower, which is actually still there. Even though it was a relatively small estate as Hudson River Estates go, um, it still had a lot of the same amenities that typical estate owners would want. Orchards, space for livestock, space for driving their horses around the property, carriages and all that. Even had a cemetery on the property that was established in the late 1700s by the Crook family. And that's, that's still there. The last person interred in that cemetery, I believe, was in the mid-1800s, and when the National Park Service was given this property by donation, it was found that all the headstones had been removed, and we in the basement of Belfield. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> don't know, know why. That. So, we put the headstones back. Obviously, we don't know exactly where they go, but <laughs> they're... <laughs> At least they're within the same the same small area it's a very small cemetery but the the whole property has got a lot of a lot of little quirks like that what beatrix designed she designed
0: a walled garden so it's this enclosed formal garden surrounded by this wild informal garden correct
1: that was the design yeah unfortunately the wild garden was never Part of the completed project, which we can talk about now or we can talk about later, but that's that's the next thing that's on our plate when oh, it comes to it. OK, yeah, if I can back up to talk about how the garden was kind of rediscovered because that, that kind of plays into the whole story of what we're going to be doing next. You know, as as Dave was saying, there were a lot of different parts to this estate that were not all in the greatest shape when it was acquired by the National Park Service in 1976. And our garden, the beatrix Farron Garden, was one of those kind of derelict locations. And Dave can jump in because he'll have much more personal knowledge of the state of things since he's been around since the 80s. But as I understand it, there was just not a lot kind of preserved in the interior garden. The original tree that was planted there, the elm tree was still there, but, and the hemlock hedges that take the whole southern end of the garden walls that changed to hemlock hedges. Those were still there, but were not protected by deer fencing. So they were completely eaten to bits. And then there was the central lawn. And from, from what I understand, that was kind of it for what was original and left in the garden. All the other plantings had been just let to kind of go wild or to go, you know, to, to nothing. And when the house was acquired by the National Park Service... Restoring the garden was not the first priority. I think making the house, uh, ma- maintaining the house and salvaging the house and making that a useful part of the property donation was the most important thing. And the garden was put to bed by having black plastic laid down on all of the flower beds. The gates, which were designed by Farron with beautiful ironwork uh, and oak wood, those were taken down. The trellising system that she designed for the stone walls was taken down. Everything was just kind of put to bed indefinitely, I think, until someone would come along to have a a plan of how to take care of it or restore it. And I think even though, I'm sure the park knew perhaps at that point that Beatrix Varen had designed the garden. and, And Dave, I don't know if that's true, if they knew from the very beginning of when they acquired the estate, I don't know if that was something notable or not. I'm sure it was understood, but I don't know if anyone was that impressed by that information. National Park Service
2: at that time wasn't really impressed by any landscape uh, restoration projects at all. Cultural landscapes had really not even been defined as something we cared about at Mm. that time. So this this was still pretty early in the National Park Service's evolution of how we think about and try to restore and maintain cultural landscapes. Um, So it's not that surprising that it got left behind. The same thing happened at the Vanderbilt Estate. Uh, The same thing happened at the Franklin Roosevelt Estate with the home garden that was turned into a parking lot. This was a common thing. It was always the focus on the primary structure and that primary person that the place was you know, saved for originally. And, and Belfield was really no different. But I think the difference in, that happened at Belfield was that it was a local person or a group of local people who learned about the garden and were really the spark that started the effort to restore it. Kit Karen was the first one that I knew. She was a local woman and they basically came to the National Park Service and said, hey, you've got something here. You know, let us let us help you restore it. And I think the the NPS was okay. Sure, yeah, you know, we'll we'll see what you do. And they did. I mean, they raised money, they fixed things, they got volunteers, and so that started the ball rolling. And that's been the model for a lot of other things that we do for the Vanderbilt Gardens. That's another volunteer project. Um, we have two, uh, three other large gardens in the Hyde Park sites. And they're pretty much all maintained by volunteers. You know, for for 30 years, we had one gardener that cut three parks, and he was really focused on just the FDR Memorial Rose Garden and Gravesite, which was, that's our highest priority. So we just don't have the staff to maintain a lot of gardens, but we have a lot of people who are interested in helping. And that's what's made this successful. Well, let me back up
0: a minute, because I want to kind of connect two points here. I want to connect the point where Beatrix has designed this garden, the new Bolds live in the house, and the point where it's handed over to the Park Service and this state of disrepair. Like, what happened there? Why was it that by the time it was... First of all, why was it given to the uh, National Park Service to begin with? And second of all, what was it that led to this place being in a state where it really needed repairs, the garden was completely
2: overgrown and forgotten. How'd that occur? Well, one of the Newbolds, Mary Newbold, uh, married a man named Gerald Morgan, and they were living here at the time and up through the 1970s as their private home. You know, they raised their children here. They were getting older. And you can imagine, you know, a, a, a large building like this in the grounds. It's just not practical for a you know, a regular person to try to maintain some, something like this. Gerald had a lot of foresight. There's a property just to the north of Belfield. It's a large hayfield and with woods that go down to the Hudson River, about 90 acres. He established a conservation easement on that property to protect it from future development. It was the first such easement in New York State. So he was a definitely a preservation-minded person, and he thought that the only way that we would be able to preserve Belfield was if the National Park Service took it on as an administrative area and also as a buffer to protect the Roosevelt estate next door from Belfield ever getting developed into something like a strip mall, which, you know, if you've been to Hyde Park, it's not the most progressive, well-planned community. So there was that fear. So Gerald donated the property um, in 1976. And it, yeah, it was kind of run down. He had just run out of money to, to maintain it. And I, I did meet him. His family was very involved in the property. Um, they did their family reunion here uh, around, I think it was about 1995. And, um, you know, he, was, he really cared about the property. And he would just, you know, call me randomly and just ask questions about, how is Donnie doing on that bridge we asked him to work on? You know, that sort of thing. I mean, he was a wonderful person. He, he had moved to Richmond, Virginia uh, uh, shortly after he uh, sold the, or donated the building to the Park Service.
0: Well, and this building never was a primary residence, correct? It was like a summer home.
2: Yeah, it was usually seasonal for all the people that were here. I mean, even the Roosevelts and Vanderbilts and Hyde Park, the same is true of them. They weren't here 365 days a year. Nobody came here in the summer. It's too hot and humid. They went to the city for the winter. So it usually was a fall and spring uh, time. Some people more than others, and and some people did live full time. But yeah, it was generally a seasonal home. So at the point when he handed it over, it sounds like it had just
0: become pretty overwhelming to try to maintain this, you know, fairly large property that they're not even really living at.
2: Yeah, it, it was. I I can't imagine how hard it would have been to to uh, maintain something like this.
0: And also, I think you know, you, you kind of said this, but I I'd like to just point out how cool that is that he had the forethought and the interest in the building as a historical place that, that is merits preservation, that he would hand it over to the national park service instead of trying to sell it or develop it, which I'm sure would have
2: been financially more advantageous to him. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, he could have, lo- he could have, sold that property and made a lot of money i mean it's got very viable commercial frontage on the main highway which goes here u.s route 9 it would it would have been a lot of a lot of money for that but um he he wanted to move in another direction and we're really grateful
0: that he did oh i'm sure okay we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about where things are at when the park service took over be back in a minute Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series website and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandoned America. That's patreo dot com slash abandoned America. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at That's admin at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites or order my two abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. And we're back. Okay, Dave, we were just talking about Gerald Morgan Jr. donating the property to the National Park Service. When they handed it over, can you tell me a little bit about the condition of the garden itself and the
2: mansion? Well, I can't tell you much more than Karen did about the garden. First time I saw it, it had already been put to bed. That was a few years before I started working here. Um, I saw the black plastic. I saw the, the trellising that was on the ground. Um, that is now, you know, where the trellis grows on the walls. The paths were there, but they're kind of forlorn. The, the hedge was in really bad shape and the mansion really needed, I mean, it's, we put a lot of money into it over the last few years. It needed paint, it's got foundation issues, um, it needed new heating systems, the interior needed to be refurbished to re- be repurposed as office space and we also have a lot of public um, meetings in the building as well so we had to think about handicapped access and accessibility of the building so it it needed a lot of upgrades and we're a government agency we're competing against national park service sites from Yosemite to Yellowstone to Denali to this you know the White House so there's there's a lot of a lot of need and not a lot of money and so you have it takes time to get funding through for projects. So the building has slowly but surely improved over the decades. So now it's it's in reasonably good shape. And we can say that to pretty much all the buildings in the site, they're all in reasonably good shape. None of them are in perfect shape, uh, but they're all a work in progress. And the garden, before it was put to bed,
0: I, I, I mean, I'm assuming that was just an explosion of whatever it was that was still
1: growing there? I think what was there was probably again, kind of many years of, of neglect because it was originally put in for a very wealthy family, right? The Newbolds, it was put in for their kind of grand spring and fall vacation estate where they would go to spend time with the Roosevelt's because uh, Newbold was FDR's mentor. It's, it's cited that, you know, his daughter, Mary and FDR were the same age and they did spend a lot of time with Sarah Roosevelt. There's, I think the garden had a priority of looking its best when Beatrix put it in in those early years in the 1910s, 1920s. And then after that point, when it was really just a family backyard, I don't think that it was getting maintained to the same standard of her original designs. And after, you know, 50, 60 years after she put it in, I imagine there wasn't probably a ton in there that was her original intention. I'm sure that there were some perennials and some bulbs that were still there. We know that she had peonies that were in the garden that we probably still have today. Some of the vines that were growing on the walls were probably planted by her. But this is a point where I can tell you that we don't have the original plant list of her very initial garden design. We don't have her you know, her garden layout drawings. We have her garden design hardscaping drawings that were in the archives at Berkeley. We know that she put in the paths and the, the, the pathway stones that are in the garden now are original to her design. We know that the walls and the trellising and the gate gates were original, the design of where the hemlocks should go and the way that that's laid out is her design. And we know that there was a tree growing in the center that was the elm that she built it all around. And we have some photographs from when the architectural remodeling was going on. We have some photographs that show where some other trees were and still are around the garden that she built the walls and the the design around. But we don't have her original plant design. Dave mentioned a woman named Kate Karen who was kind of the spark that got this whole restoration project going. She was studying landscape architecture at Cornell and doing a research project on Beatrix Farrand, as I understand it, and discovered in her research that Farrand had designed a site in Hyde Park and found it to be ours and decided that she was going to write her project paper on this garden at Belfield and included in it a proposal of how it could be restored and it was that proposal that was given to the National Park Service and that is kind of what got the whole volunteer group together to make the project happen but in those original proposal design in that in that original proposal Kate explained that we could use existing plant lists and designs that do exist from gardens that Beatrix made in the same time period as the Belfield Garden, that had some even similar graphic layouts, some similar rectangular structures with double beds and single beds. The way this that are the way that our gardens laid out, that Kate argued that you could use some of those other designs with lists that do exist from the same time period in the same area in the same planting zones and it would be a legitimate way to restore a historic garden and i agree because if you think of her as like a an artist if you think of a ferrand as an as an artist that would have a particular palette you know an artist artistic palette of plants she would be using similar favorites from one garden to the next during a same era, same period of her life. So Kate and some other landscape people, you know, came together and decided the plants that should be put into our restored version of Beatrix's garden.
0: Well, and and that's a really exciting thing because I mean, here you have a group of people that are forming around somebody's vision that was lost decades earlier in many ways and is committed to donating their time and their resources to recreating that so people are able to experience it again. I, I just think that's pretty incredible. And it, you would be much more of an expert on this than I would, but it doesn't seem like a thing that probably happens
1: a whole lot. Yeah, I, I can't say that I am an expert on restored historic gardens, honestly. that it's a, It's funny that I've ended up working at two of them and they've They've come from really different places. The Morris Jamel mansion that I mentioned where I used to work in Manhattan had so many different people overseeing that garden for so many decades. The Daughters of the American Revolution and people who worked at this parks department and people who worked for Historic Housing Trust, there were so many different cooks in the kitchen that had their hands on what happened to that garden over the many, many, many decades. This garden more specifically had one kind of design that got put in in the early 1900s. And then that was kind of it. And then it was, you know, it it ran its course and then got restored. So I think it was probably a very, very exciting discovery for Kate Karen when she realized that this could be a major project that, you know, that she could really steer this major project to happen. I'm sure it was very exciting for her. And for the people who were involved from the beginning, I'm sure that it was very exciting for them. But I I can't honestly say that I know a lot about other restorations because I think more often it's like the situation I saw at Morse Jamel where there's so many different periods that something could be restored to because if something existed, you know, if something was designed in 1850 but had 10 different people stewarding it from that point on, at what point do you restore something to? Do you restore it to the original? Do you restore it to someone who was very famous, who took care of it in 1890? Do you restore, you know, it's it's hard to kind of know what period of history is the one that gets the most support, you know, so for us, it's it's been that we have restored it to try to be the way that it was probably designed when Beatrix put it in, but... That said, there are some plants that, you know, she did use that she didn't have the knowledge we have now about them being perhaps invasive or highly aggressive or prone to certain diseases or, you know, no longer going, going to work in our climate, which has had some ecological shifts. So it's all through the lens of trying to represent what we think she would have done. But it's, again, it's open to interpretation. And I think... That makes it still kind of a living thing. The The process is all kind of a living thing.
0: Right. A garden by its very nature, like that's something that requires constant maintenance and attention and care. Can you tell me a little bit about the volunteers? Like, how do you get volunteers to do this? How big is the group of volunteers? What do they do?
1: Yeah, I was incredibly lucky, I don't know what other word to use besides lucky, to inherit a group of volunteers that had already been established long before I got hired five years ago. So this original group of people that got together when Kate Karen put together this project proposal, many of those people are still involved in the association 25, 26, 27 years later. So. Not all of them are the regular volunteers that still show up, but some of them are on their board or on the advisory councils and help with different committee things. But there was a woman who was really interested in the garden from very early on. Her name is Allie Lou Curtin. I never had the pleasure of meeting her, unfortunately, before she passed away, but she was... Everyone tells me that she was a real firecracker and she had a lot of friends and she was someone who did not take no for an answer, but in the nicest, most like sweet way possible. So she would just get everyone she knew involved to come to these Tuesday morning volunteer sessions and they called themselves the weeders and they showed up every single Tuesday year after year, after year, after year to weed the pathways, to cut back the peonies, to, I think they used to mow the lawn before the National Park Service took that on, to trimming the head, the not the hedges, but the vines along the tops of the stone walls. I mean, I think they kind of did everything. And as part of being an organized group like this and wanting to become an official park partner with the National Park Service, they also said that they would take on the responsibility of raising money to hire a horticulturist. So Dave might be able to name the year, but I'm not sure when that, that actual thing happened that that Ann Sims, the first horticulturist, was was hired. I think it might have been like 1984, 1985. So they, they formed a board and a nonprofit agency and raised the money to hire a staff member. And so that was kind of the beginning of making this official on paper was having a staff horticulturist who would oversee the work that needed to be done weekly and liaison with the National Park Service to make sure that Everyone was holding up their end of the deal, taking care of this public place. And so Anne was there for 20, maybe it wasn't 85, maybe it was 95. She was there for 22 years. And then I, and she was the only horticulturist for 22 years. And so I took over from her five years ago. Um, And she is one of the most friendly, lovely people that you can ever meet. And so I think she grew the volunteer group pretty big because she's lovely and fun to be around and taught everyone a lot about stuff. And so the volunteers now, I expanded it to also include Saturdays because I thought it was important to be able to include people who work during the week and couldn't come on a Tuesday morning. So we have our volunteers come on Tuesdays and Saturday mornings. A lot of the original volunteers have kind of aged out or have retired and moved away or have, you know, just prioritized other things. And we have some newer, younger people that come from time to time. I would love more volunteers. I would love anyone (laughs) who wants to be involved to join. It's, you know, you certainly don't have to be an expert. There's a lot to learn. Even, you know, I still have tons to learn. We all learn together. But yeah, my, my wonderful, wonderful weeders, they call them the weeders.
0: Well, that's and that actually sounds like a really fun way to learn about more about this if it's a subject that you're interested in. I wanted to ask, too, about when we were talking about setting up this episode when we first met, you had mentioned some of the challenges that you have there, though, and one of them was uh, accessibility for people, and you you kind of wanting to make sure that more people were able to come and visit, if I recall correctly. But the other one was visibility. Here you have, in a way, it's, I mean, it's still kind of a little bit of a secret garden, like you, you would, you either stumble across it, or you have to know that it's there. It's not like it's particularly hard to find. But can you talk a little bit about that and what you are doing to address those things?
1: Sure. Well, yeah, you you would you called it the secret garden when you started our little our address at the top of the interview. And I just I wish I could get people to stop calling it the secret garden, but it's hard. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Please don't be sorry. I hear that weekly. Everyone calls it the secret garden and I want it to be called the unsecret garden because I want <laughs> be, I want everyone to come and know about it but it's hard not to call it that because it's, you have these adorable gates that you can look through and it's, it's, you know, this, it does read very much like the the book, the secret garden that you think that you've come across this little treasure of a place that nobody else knows about. So yeah, the the main thing that we're working on right now to address that is to realize the wild garden on the exterior of the walls. So I mentioned that we have the hardscaping design drawing Mm -hmm and at the archives, at, at Ferentz Archives at Berkeley. And in that original drawing, she indicates this kind of undulating wild curving line around the exterior of the entire garden on all sides. And it, and it says within that line, it says wild garden, and that's all we have to go on. <laughs> but she did so many other things with native planting and with kind of like wilding landscapes that a group of people got together again before I was hired to talk about The same method that was used on the interior, researching her other spaces, researching other plants that she used, comparing other designs of the same time period. A group got together and said we could do the same thing on the exterior, and in doing that, we'd really kind of make a almost like a an entryway into our garden that was a very public kind of doormat, a welcome mat, you know, into the garden. So if you are at the estate, if you're going into the Wallace Visitor Center or you're driving in from Route 9, you might see something attractive to come over and explore. You could be curious while you're walking the Hyde Park trails coming over from Farm Lane or coming you know, back from a tour of Springwood. You might see something in the distance that looks a little bit more inviting than our kind of bleak empty area on the outside of the garden, which a lot of people think they're not even allowed to go in. I was um, going to
0: say that. I mean, that's that was kind of the impression that you get when you go up to it is like, oh boy, am I even supposed to like be here? Am I allowed to go in here and look at it? I think you've definitely done a lot of work to make it more inviting, but I, I think that would be terrific what you're talking about because, yeah, I mean, you do you do get a little bit of that sense. Like, is this part of the thing that I can do around here?
1: Yeah. I hear that every day I'm working in there. Someone kind of knocks on the gate or opens it and says, am I allowed to come in? And I say, of course, please come in. We do keep the gates closed. They're never locked. They're very easy to open, but we keep them closed just because we have so much deer in the park and we have to make sure they're not eating the plants, but you know, they're, they're always unlocked and the gardens always open. Anytime the grounds of the park are open, the garden is open and, Anybody is welcome to come in. Dogs are welcome as long as they're leashed and children and the lawn is available for picnicking or anything anyone wants to do. So that's, I think having the wild garden put in on the exterior, hopefully will get more people realizing that there's more to explore when you're walking the grounds. Yeah. Cause it's absolutely
0: beautiful. And I, I mean, I could see where in a way that would be a little frustrating for you. Cause you're like, we put all this work into this and here we have this really cool thing and we want to share it with everybody. We're here. We're here. You can you can come in and enjoy it as long as you are not a deer. Exactly. (laughs) So you also do a lot of cool programs there. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about them. Like, for example, I noticed one that was at the end of November that was a uh, like a a wreath design course or class. And uh, my wife got uh, bitten by the wreath bug about two years ago. So when I saw that, I was really excited. I was like, oh, we we have to go see if we can get to that. What are some of the other things that you offer that people who are visiting can participate in like that?
1: Sure. Well, some of the more cultural arts related things, I started that going when I got hired because I thought coming from a garden in New York City, I thought the way to get people into the garden is to have programs for them. People will come if you give them things to do. And before that, we had a annual lecture that happens every June. So that's been going on. I think this will be the 14th or 15th year this coming year. We have a a guest that comes to lecture on something within their field uh in horticulture or botany or design. So that's that happens every June. And then besides that, there had been some like horticultural workshops and other things that just would happen from time to time. But I really have made it a point to try to have as many different types of programs that happen in the garden as often as possible. So once a month or sometimes twice a month, there'll be something going on that is always going to be free uh, so that it doesn't, it's accessible for anybody who, who has the interest to come. I don't want means to be a reason that someone doesn't come so this last year, we had watercolor workshop with a local painter from Rhinebeck, Betsy Jacaruso. we had Bollywood dancing workshops with oh, uh, a staff member from Bard who came, Arobi Hanif. We had embroidery uh, workshop with a Vassar grad who lives in the city now, um, Jessica Mafia. We had the local libraries in Stasburg and in Rhinebeck, the Star Library, they came and did a few programs. We had a book club that discussed a Edith Wharton book. Um, We're just trying to get a lot of different things going on so that there'll be something that's, you know, hopefully everyone will be a little bit interested in trying something out. And then if you invite a friend who's never been in the garden, that's really the point is to try to get new faces in the garden and more people understanding that this is a public park. This is a public place that is now federally owned, which means it's owned by you And everyone has their right to come in and use it and enjoy it. And it's not off limits. Even if the gates are closed, it's still, you know, it's still a public place that everyone should use and enjoy. And
0: I I mean, I think that's really cool. I love the park service in general for that, but I think that's really great that you're doing that. And again, I mean, just to underline it, how neat this is that you can go and enjoy the garden. You can go and enjoy the programs and it's free. That I think is a really exciting thing. and certainly. If you're visiting the area or um, you live in the area, I would I would definitely look into both of those things. Because to be quite honest, if you're going to go take an embroidery workshop, for example, or learn about making wreaths, those classes can be pretty expensive. So the fact that you're offering that just for whoever wants to come in the public, just to get them to come out and experience this place, I think is a, a really cool act of sharing and uh,
1: generosity, really. Well, we've been really, really lucky to have the support of Artsmith Hudson's grant programs. Um, Artsmith Hudson is an incredible agency that helps distribute grants in our area, all over the Hudson Valley, and so we've gotten a few awards with their help that have made all of that possible.
0: Well, wrapping up here, is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add? Any questions that you have for me? Um, thoughts that you want people to leave with? I want to make. Sure-
2: that you put in a plug for the Beatrix Ferrand Garden Association's website so people can find out what's going on. Absolutely. That'll be in the show notes.
0: I will make sure that that is up there. And I'll also have links specifically to the history and to the events page. So that people can check that out. Thank you for drawing attention to that. Definitely we will have that in there.
1: That's smart. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> I uh, should have mentioned that stuff.
0: Well, it's good. To, it's It'll be there, but it's good to mention it in the show. So people are like, oh, hey, wait a minute. I should go to the show notes and find out more about this.
2: I, I've worked with a lot of external groups, you know, partner organizations, and I have n- never been more happy to work with a group than I have with BFGA. I mean, oh. they are and and they do such good work and they're so easy to work.
1: That's well, nice. Thanks, Dave.
0: I think that's something that you really get the sense of is that you want this to be a welcoming place for everybody and for everybody to be able to kind of participate in it, share it, uh, appreciate it. So that's that's awesome.
1: Yeah, there's some there I'm going to botch this quote cuz I I don't know exactly where it came from or when the, what the context was when she said it. But Beatrix Farron was known for valuing beautiful spaces as something that everyone should have access to. The film that I mentioned that we made was narrated and kind of hosted by this modern star of the landscaping world, Lyndon B. Miller, who's lovely and incredible talent of her own. And she is a public space gardener who has always been... A big fan of Beatrix Farrand. For this reason, I think that she really thought that a public space, you know, should be beautiful for all the people using it. So when she designed at colleges, and she would think about the wayfinding design of a space, and and how students would themselves want to use a space, and that they should define the way that things are laid out for their own convenience and enjoyment, and that things should be beautiful for the students and the staff and for everyone who was using these areas. I think that's something that I like to remind myself when, even though she designed the garden that we currently take care of as a private garden, the fact that it's public now, I really hope would delight her and that she would be glad that we're making it accessible for people and make sure that it's, you know, it's maintained so that everyone can enjoy it. I think that would be something that she would really value. Well,
0: and that's really what's special about, you folks maintaining your legacy and making it something that can be shared with people in the future. I'm sure she would. I'm sure she would be very honored by that. That's kind of uh, the best any of us can hope for, right, is that that somewhere down the line, somebody sees the value of the things that we're doing and tries to keep the the torch going so that other people can appreciate it and be a part of it. What can people do if they would like to help support your efforts?
1: Sure. Well, the, the- most pressing thing that we're working right now to develop is the realization of the Beatrix Fair and Wild Garden, which is on the exterior of the garden site. And so we are actively fundraising for this project, which is pretty much the, the largest project that we've undertaken since the original restoration in the eighties and nineties, you know, we've just been maintaining the beautiful interior garden for these past couple of decades. And now this is our next big step in truly renovating the site to the design specifications that Beatrix wanted in her original design. So this wild garden project, not only is going to put plants in, but will hopefully create, you know, better pathways between ourselves and, and the other trails that are around us in the park and in Hyde Park itself and also you know would love to grow the community of volunteers and supporters and members by having this major project underway so people who want to get involved can go to our website and find out how to donate can read information about the wild garden project and how it's come to be and all the different things that we hope for it and there's a way to contact us if you would like to be involved financially or as a member or as a volunteer. And what is that website? Thanks. It's BeatrixFerrandGardenHydePark.org. So it's B-E-A-T-R-I-X Ferrand, Farrand F-A-R-R-A-N-D, GardenHydePark.org. So
0: one more time, B-E-A-T-R-I-X-F-A-R-R-A-N-D-G-A-R-D-E-N- H-Y-D-E-P-A-R-K dot what? I forgot the dot. O-R-G. O-R-G. Okay. Thank you very much. (laughs) Karen and Dave, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. And I would, again, direct people who are listening to the podcast to go to the show notes. They'll be on my website, abandonedamerica.us under the podcast tab. You can go down and and pick this episode out, and we'll have the links that we talked about the garden itself, the movie that Karen has mentioned, the events, and a whole bunch of other information if you're interested in it. Thank you both so much. Thanks a lot
1: for having us.
0: Well, that's a wrap for today's show. If you'd like to check out the show notes for links to further reading, you can do so at AbandonedAmerica.us. Just click on the podcast link at the top, pull up the episode, and off you go down the internet rabbit hole. As always, if you enjoy the show, subscribing to the podcast, sharing it, or writing a review is hugely appreciated. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.